In the words of David Lee Roth, I heard you missed us. We're back. Hi, it's Bo Dewar. This is the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for July 18th, 2018. Uh, this is going to be a two-parter coming back from the World Cup with a bang uh, because this conversation ran rather long. I'm not sure I can post podcasts in more than an hour anymore. Uh, also, if you listen to this while commuting, uh, first of all, hi, Eric. Uh, second of all, I hope your commute is short enough that you don't have an hour and a half uh, to listen to this. If you do, just listen to part one and then listen to part two. Not that hard. Um, also, conveniently, the phone dropped out uh, about the 45-minute mark, so we have a nice easy place to, to break in between. I don't have a long intro this week, but I did want to take care of some business, and that is to thank people who have supported Ranting Soccer Dad on Patreon. So, here we go. That would be Armando Diaz, Bill Bean, Dave Russell, Gregory Roche, Jason McConnell, Jeff Clark, John Stewart, uh, not that John Stewart, it's J-O-H-N, uh, Judith Cavill, Keith Bundy, Rich Hieronymus, Robert Hay, Taylor Sorrells, and Tim Stanton. Thank you very much for your support, and pretty soon there are going to be items for sale you either through supporting me at Patreon or if you just want to make a one-time purchase. I'm going to have t-shirts and I'm going to have something for your car or somewhere else, either a decal or a cling. Haven't quite decided yet. I'm going to I have an appointment next week to go in and set that straight. So the long interview this week uh, that will be split in two parts is with Nathan Richardson. Uh, he is a professor of Spanish literature. Uh, so we'll be talking, of course, about uh, Don Quixote. No, no, we're going to be talking about uh, his soccer experiences and the book that he co-authored with a fellow uh, academic. Um, it's called Shoeless Soccer. It does not read like an academic book, which is refreshing. It's very down-to-earth, has some good suggestions and some interesting experiences to share, and that's why this conversation is so long. So please enjoy my conversation, part one of it, here with Nathan Richardson. The cost of youth soccer, the industry, has just gotten completely out of control. Why are kids on certain teams and how they found themselves there? And is it indeed the best situation for them to develop? There really seems to be a lack of inclusion. I'd love to see a club just be honest and right. say that. <laughs> right, um, right. But you know all that BS? Forget that. We're not saying it because it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're just right. going to play to win. Welcome to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast interview, and as always, we start with our guest introducing himself. So, you have the floor. Go ahead. Okay. I'm Nathan Richardson. I am uh, – my, my real job, my day job is I'm, I'm a professor of Spanish literature. I've been working for the last 19 years at Bowling Green State University. I've just taken a job at the University of Texas in San Antonio. So, that's my real job. Uh, about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I became heavily involved in youth soccer in in the area where we lived in Northwest Ohio, um, and I was the president of a soccer club for a total of six years. I was on the board of that club for 10 years. I ran their rec league, I guess the equivalent of a rec league, we call it the D League, for uh, six years and coached extensively during that time and recruited coaches and trained coaches. 
and I uh, coached travel most of that time as well, typically picking up the teams that nobody <laughs> that nobody wanted to coach. Um, in my in my final years, I started to demand uh, slightly better better teams to see what I could do with those teams. And uh, for one, see for for uh, for about nine months, I was a, I was a director of coaching, and uh, the, the club was going through a transition. They hired me to be director of coaching. Um, for possibly it wasn't an interim position, but quickly I realized I had a full time job. And I couldn't do it. Uh, I couldn't do that, and uh, and be director of coaching. So I stepped down after nine months. So I have some experience as director of coaching for a travel, for a travel program. But um, those are my those are my two uh, my two my, my what I've been doing for the last twelve years. Again, uh, my full time job. I'm I'm a professor. Uh, Part time, I was I was helping with a with a local soccer club, and uh, most recently I with a. With a friend of mine, we co-authored a book called Shula Soccer, uh, Fixing the System and Winning the World Cup. Right, and that's the book that uh, I've talked about on the blog. Um, before the World Cup, I think, you know, and then I, I know you and I made contact then, and we agreed to wait till after the World Cup was done because there were just too many games to watch. <laughs> too yeah. Too much to do in the last month. <laughs> so, um, so one thing I want to ask you about coaching uh, you obviously devote a lot of time to it and um, probably had to go through licensing courses of various kinds. And coaching education is, of course, a big issue. It was a big issue during the uh, presidential campaign we just had. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's too expensive or too far away, or in some cases, it's just not very good. Um, mm-hmm. What's the best coaching education that you've, that you've come across? Okay. Well, first of all, I think to be fair, the coaching education I received in my region wasn't too was fairly accessible, and I think that the people running the programs were uh, were, were were pretty helpful. Um, there was a lot of hands-on mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, I thought the the well, the NSCAA was much more hands-on than the other than the other people, but they were both mm-hmm. uh, both licensing programs. I think were, were fairly helpful, and uh, and there were people saying the right things. Now we can get into this later, but uh, uh, that the people running the courses are telling you the right things, but as soon as you go to your mm-hmm. clubs, you're being told almost the opposite, or at least you're being sent messages that kind of run and completely counter what, to what they're telling you in these coaches and coaching education uh, programs. Because the, the, the licensure programs are all about talking to you about player development and talking to you about kind of all the right things. And they they give you all sorts of uh, helpful uh activities uh that 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 will keep the kids engaged. So, you know, I don't have too many complaints about the coaching education I received given our understanding of soccer within the United States of America today. Right. Uh, now, our argument in the book is that that, that is the problem. That the the system is the system works beautifully given what our understanding of soccer is and we we argue that our understanding of soccer is something very different, and so then I'll I'll, I'll leave aside for the moment this question or the, the the question of the coaching education we receive here in the United States, and I'll just tell you, my 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 real coaching education has happened overseas. I've lived in Argentina for a couple of years. Um, I've lived in Spain for probably a total of three to four years of my life. Um, one of those years, uh, one of my sons was playing uh, soccer already, and he. Uh, we just went around the corner to a. You know, we did, we were pretty ignorant at the time and signed him up for a club. And it turned out that this club was, uh, you know, their youth teams were playing against Real Madrid and Atletico, 
and Getafe and Rayo Vallecano. I mean, these are teams that play in La Liga. Right. These are the youth teams, but uh, but you know, it was just a, we just figured we we're signing up for a local club. But for an entire year, I went to practice twice a week and uh, just sat there and talked with parents and just watched what they did. And I became friends with a couple of guys, uh, a coach who went on. He left that program and then went on to, to coach uh, the U-17s at Getafe, you know, one of the La Liga teams. And I would go and visit his practices at Getafe uh, and just kind of watch what he was doing. Uh, I noticed a number of details that were very different from what we see here in the United States. One thing I noticed, uh, perhaps above all else from the very beginning, was the level of joy involved in Spanish soccer practices. The laughter, the fun, uh, and combined with that, the intensity. There was there was there the, the scale of emotion was much more intense in Spain than anything I've seen here, and it's not a question of Spanish character. Um, it was a question of the way they were running practices. But there was much more laughter, and then every once in a while, the kids would get really intense. The coach would get really intense. But it was the laughter that I that I noticed from the beginning. Much more fun in Spain than here in the United States. What I've noticed my on my most recent trip to Argentina was. Everything I saw was incredibly compact, very small fields, lots of kids, and lots of play. And I'll just leave it at that. But uh, so, you know, I think that I've been taught by very competent teachers here in the United States. I'm a teacher myself. I've spent the last 25 years of my life teaching. Very competent teaching going on here in the United States. But we begin from certain premises that I, I, I think I would argue are 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 misguided and uh and then there's just something different in the overall picture of what you see in spain and argentina versus what you see here i can only speak for spain and argentina i can't speak for the rest of the world but i think it tells you something because i think that argentina and spain have historically been more successful in the united states in soccer and it's it's funny you mentioned fun because that's something that a lot of American coaches, you know, even those who shun the U.S. soccer establishment and set themselves outside of it, they say, well, other countries are better because they take this so seriously. And every and uh, mm-hmm. they, they, if you mention fun, they accuse you of having a recreational mindset. And, you know, yeah. this means they, they think this needs to be deadly serious. And they say, well, other countries, they have people who – are you know practically stabbing each other in the back because this is their way out of poverty, and then your experience is that this is actually fun and it's joyful. And and you know we again this is something we heard in the presidential campaign. Steve Gans said that you know he had a son who went through the development academy, and said that they just sucked the joy out of it. And there's only one he went yeah. back and just started playing more for fun that he regained his love of the game. Yeah. So. Yeah. So have you experienced that too, where it seems like the, um, I don't know, the cognoscenti, the uh, the people who um, establish themselves as the elite voices of how to do youth soccer correctly, don't seem to understand the fun aspect. Well, and exactly, and it's funny that you you conclude by saying how to do soccer correctly, and <laughs> therein is that there's that is the heart of the matter: how to do soccer correctly. I mean, we would say that, but you're, you're, what you're basically doing is you're, 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 cha- 
you're channeling all these voices you've heard over the years, how to do soccer correctly. What is soccer? I mean, what is soccer? Soccer is some kids competing over a ball and one group of kids trying to get it in across some some line over there that the other team is defending, and they're trying to get it across some line that you're defending. That is all it is. And if you yeah. give kids a ball, um, at least in the olden days, before there were all these other distractions, if you gave us a ball, what would we do with it? We would go straight out into the street, and we would start kicking it. We just set up some some kind of barrier, and every once in a while a car would come along, and we'd run out of the street, and then we'd go back in the street, <laughs> and it would be a very small little area, and we'd probably have curves or walls somewhere so the ball wouldn't go flying, you know, 100 yards away every time we, we mishit it. And we would just be having the time of our lives and creating and having all sorts of fun. I mean, that's all that soccer is. Now, it's true that in the World Cup, we see referees and we see coaches and we see teams with all with fancy uniforms and they're changing these uniforms at even halftime and they're and and they've got they've got they've got warm-up outfits and they've got uh they've got game outfits and they've got the champions league kit and they've got the la liga kit and they've got the away kit and yeah you know, and it goes on and on and on and on and now we've even got video assistant replay assistant replay but at its essence soccer is just people just kicking a ball to try to get into the other team's goal, whatever that might be. And so we talk about the correct way to play soccer. The problem is that we've got this idea of a correct way to play soccer, and that's where we kill the joy of the game at the youngest ages. You know, we can talk about a correct way or a proper way to coach soccer once we have kids who have learned to enjoy this game, who've learned to create. But when we're talking about a correct way, a proper way um, to 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 teach this game to five and six and seven and eight year olds, um, we're going to create the mess that we've created. And, and there have been all sorts of articles uh, that you've seen and I've seen just in the last few days in the Atlantic and Forbes and New York Times and, and then our op-ed in USA Today, all talking about the same problem. We've got uh, uh, enrollments in, in youth soccer programs on you know a dramatic decline over the last few years. And uh, we're producing we continue to produce mediocrity. Uh, we're not producing the world-class talent that you would expect that a country of our size, with our economic resources, with our kind of know-how, would, would produce. And people saying, well, it's, we're still young. Well, you know, Japan and South Korea are, it's not like they, they're, you know, traditional powerhouses, but they're getting further than we are. I don't know what they're doing there. Um, but uh, young is, 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 I don't think, is an excuse. Uh, I think we've been we've we've been at it for several generations, and um, but I but going back to that that issue of the, the the proper way or the correct way to do soccer, that's where we get into trouble. Yeah, and it seems like we tend to lurch from one one school of thought to another. I mean, uh, for a while, um, I think when I first started getting involved in these issues, uh, even. Um, just before I had kids or when my kids were very young, uh, it, it, the school of thought was, well, you know, our kids have always been told, you know, not to be individuals and not to take people on. So we really need to be make it all about, about dribbling. And then yeah. Claudia Reyna unveils the curriculum and says, uh, oh, we need to uh, – you watch Barcelona. They never, they never take more than two or three touches on the ball before they pass it. We need to uh, teach that. And – 
for a while, if you went to an NSCAA convention, now now United Soccer Coaches, um, everything was how to play like Barcelona. And then if you watch yeah. this year's World Cup, you saw Spain, you know, with <laughs> that sort of mindset, pass and pass and pass and pass. And after a while, you know, my wife and I are watching at it, and we just yell, shoot! Yeah, it you know, was, it was awful. Spain, Spain yeah. jumped the shark of their own creation. Now, you know, following the Barcelona model is perfectly legitimate yeah. if you have Spanish players. Mm-hmm. Where, was, where are those Spanish players created? Are they created by eating paella and empanada? No, <laughs> those Spanish players, before they get to Barcelona, are playing. They're playing on playgrounds. They're playing on the blacktop uh, in front of their schools every day. And I right. know this because my kids attended school, public school for a year in Spain. And what happens? You show up, and there are about four different games going on with tennis balls and bouncy balls. Uh, they don't have official balls out there. Kids can't bring official balls to school, and the school isn't providing them. The kids bring a tennis ball in their pocket, and they're playing soccer games on the blacktop while their sister, while their sisters, and this is sexist, but this is what happens. The sisters are playing hopscotch, also on that blacktop, and kids are running around playing tag. And there are about four different soccer games going on on the same little court. Um, mm-hmm. This is what's happening. And then in the neighborhoods, every neighborhood has, uh, as we we've recently discovered, we've been paying attention to the French national team in the banlieues of, of uh, outside of Paris. All these neighborhoods, these high-rise neighborhoods, have down below what the equivalent of a basketball court. Typically, it's either fenced in or walled in. They don't play off the ball, typically. The ball hits the wall. It's out of bounds. You play it right back in. But basically, no larger than the size of probably an official half-court basketball court. And they're playing on hard concrete, gravel, dirt, and they're just playing pickup games all the time. So these kids have already established creativity on their own without any coaches, they're learning from their older brothers and the older and the older neighborhood kids. It's mixed ages. If you want to get in that game, you better work on your work on your skills early. But uh, you know, you've got five year olds and you've got fifteen year olds sometimes playing the same game. And so, yeah, Barcelona is taking those kids, right? Xavi and Iniesta and Pujol, Pique and, and Busquets. That generation, they grew up playing more than just at the Barcelona academy. Now it's true, probably they were grabbed fairly early on. From certain from different academies, but mm-hmm. they're playing lots of games with their friends on the weekends. Now here in the United States, perhaps we can't replicate. We can't just automatically expect our kids to go outside and play in the way they do in Spain or Argentina or other parts of the world. But if if we start trying to Barcelona the kids when we first get them at age three, but let's just say age five or age six or age seven or age eight. And we haven't allowed them to just, to just discover the game first. Well, of course, copying the Barcelona system isn't going to isn't going to produce the results that we want it to produce. Because what we've created, and I was at a recent State Cup tournament, so you know, State Cup, you expect to see that the best kids in the state playing. Well, everyone can tiki taka, that is, receive, control, pass, receive, control, pass, receive, control, pass. But as you say, at a certain point. You gotta stop ticky talking and someone's gotta take someone on. You need an Mbappe to take someone on. You need, you need, you need someone to create. And, um, I, in, a, in an entire weekend, I didn't see a single kid out there who could really create, 
who could really just break the game open, who was that difference maker in the final third, or who could even dribble himself out of trouble or herself out of trouble in the first third, where, where we've become fairly proficient passers. But that's, that's not enough. Right, and the U.S. mentality or the what well, U.S. soccer mentality, soccer with the small s, is that um, we treat finishing as kind of dessert. You know, do everything that we ask you to do in practice, and we might let you shoot at the end. And yeah. and also we end up where you have competing dogma in a sense where you know, oh let's practice shooting and I listened to a podcast recently with um, Sam Snow, the the great um, longtime coaching director of uh, U.S. Youth Soccer, and he lamented seeing something. It happened to be the war, uh, warm-up drill that I use, which is basically, okay, everybody line up, and I know lines are what yeah, yeah, yeah. you're supposed to, but lines, laps, and yeah. lectures. But as a warm-up, I was just saying, look, line up, pass me the ball, I'll put it to you to where it's in space, and then um, – then run up and shoot. And I would do it just to get people, you know, get their blood flowing, get their interest up a little bit. It's like, hey, you know, strike the ball. And and especially since at this age they're playing 11 v. 11, they're not playing on a, you know, half-court futsal. You know, we want them to swing through the ball and and, and shoot. It's, a, it's an important skill. You have to be able to, to strike the ball hard with accuracy. And... Um, so I thought, well, what am I supposed to do? And, it, and you know, what I've taken out of the coaching education uh, that I've received, and I've done more U.S. soccer, and actually this weekend I'm going to do the the new 11 v. 11 grassroots uh, thing because they keep changing the system and and so forth. But what I've been frustrated with is that they they teach you how to do a practice plan, and they don't really teach you how to teach. For a few years, they had an online F license where they actually did teach a little bit about how to teach, and I really enjoyed that. But um, so much of it is teaching how to do a practice plan, and it is coming up with these overly complicated drills that then yeah. I go, you know, I go talk to, I, I, I've practiced with a bunch of middle schoolers who've spent all day in school, and the last thing they want to do is listen to me explain, okay, now you are a neutral player on this wing, and then you yeah. have to do this before you shoot, and yeah, that that to me just doesn't work. So so I thought I'd ask to um, both have for general interest and help me uh, plan my practices this fall, uh, what do you do differently? What do, what do you do in, instead of drills? Yeah, so um, for the first 11 years of my coaching career, I, you know, tried to observe the very best, I, I, the very best coaches I could see around, uh, around town, and, and 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 I did, you know, all the different activities that U.S. soccer uh, recommends, and and I learned in these coaching education sessions, and um, you know, produced I think decent quality. Uh, I, I emphasized a lot the foot skills because I coached younger younger teams, and all my players could dribble quite well. Um, they could receive the ball. You know, it was technique, technique, technique with lots of games, lots of different activities. Um, but the reason uh, we wrote this book, Shoeless Soccer, is because uh, this last year, after the fall season was over, um, we decided to keep playing through winter. 
and uh, we were using a gym, and the people who gave who gave us permission to use the gym, they said you can use it free of charge, but it can't be for team practice. So it needs to be open for other kids. So I told my team, I said we're going to be doing this twice a week. Um, feel free to bring friends or bring siblings. So the first day, two of my kids brought their six-year-old sisters. So these are nine U nine U ten boys. They bring their six-year-old mm-hmm. sisters. And I and I planned to do some like you know interesting activities and then play. Well, I thought it's just explaining things to these six-year-old sisters. I told them that they could bring their siblings. They brought their siblings. So we started playing. We just started playing soccer. It was an indoor mm-hmm. court, um, really small-sided. I had just been to Argentina, uh, and I had observed how packed the kids were into a very small area. I thought, okay, we're going to replicate this. So we took a very small basketball court. We made it even smaller. And uh, we just set up, set up a couple of chairs on either end uh, of, of the field that we had created. And we had a bunch of different sizes of futsal balls, uh, and we just started you – know, we just tossed our ball and let him play. And the first day or so, I was kind of, like, feeling a little embarrassed. You know, the parents were going to be looking at me like, wait, you're not coaching. Of course, I wasn't being paid. It was just, it was just a, a winter <laughs> drop. Right. You still feel like, oh, I need to be coaching these kids. And by the end of the second day, um, when the kids didn't want to leave and they just kept playing and playing and playing and these six-year-old girls are still playing and everyone is laughing and having a good time, you know, a couple parents, you know, I, we, we kind of look at each other and say, something's going on here. Well, from that point forward, um, we just let them play. And through the spring season, we went back outdoors. I just let them play. So getting back to your very specific question, um, my recommendation for these younger ages is, yeah, you're right. The kids have been in school all day. What do they want to do? They want to shoot on goal. They want to play soccer. So I just bring them out, create a small-sided field, not a pug goal because I want them to blast that ball. Luckily, our club has some really nice quality goals Small size, small size goals, but you know, solid steel frames with good nets on mm-hmm. them. And we just put them. The, the first kid shows up, I start playing one v one with him. Second kid shows up, it's two v one. Third kid shows up, now I start to. Uh, fourth kid shows up, I step out. If I have an assistant there, my assistant might keep going. Especially with my 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 high school age assistant, who's got some really great foot skills. I'll keep him out there because they love playing with him, and they just play and play and play. And as long as the play has quality. I might not break that up for the first 20 minutes of practice, first half hour of practice, because they're just going hard and they are blasting that ball in the back of the net. And it's the the the, the fields are small, and so they're getting lots of chances to, to to shoot on goal. I'm not telling them to dribble or to pass. They're just they're they're being ball hogs, or they're or they're making passes depending on the mood they're in. So it, it's also a chance to work out the 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 edge they bring from school. There's always a kid who's in a bad mood, and so you kind of talk to the kid on the side while the, while the other kids are just still playing. And you might go for a half hour of just playing soccer. Now, after that, or if I'm seeing something that's not working, I might pull them aside and say, okay, guys, I want you guys to work on decision-making. Okay? For the, so we're going to just keep playing. Nothing changes. No rule changes. The only thing that I'm going to call you on is if I'm seeing you're not making good decisions, I'm going to call you on it. And if they can't get that right, I might say, okay, you make a clearly bad Bad decision, it's a turnover, and they all groan and moan. But I, I, I might also do the other extreme and say, I want you guys to be ball hogs. You, I, 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 for the next 10 minutes, you get that ball, I want you to be a total ball hog. Um, and we kind of talk about uh, how that the, 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 we don't just beat the ball hog up, right? We don't kick the ball hog to death. 
all sorts of things. But, but it's it's but we sometimes we will play for an entire practice and we just play soccer. Now there may be, and I'm not expert enough. I'm an amateur at this. There may be at older ages a time and a place for something much more complex, much more skill oriented. But I'm talking. I'm taking American kids who never play on their own. They have no game sense. To to just run them through a bunch of drills is going to kill the love of a game that they haven't. They've never even played yet. And this is the problem that I see: is we're taking three-year-olds, three-year-olds, and four-year-olds, and we're running them through drills so they can learn to play a game. By the time they would ever discover that game, most of them have lost interest. And so then we're trying to create an elite program. We're trying to figure out what to do with our elite players. We're, 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 we're taking from such a small pool because so many kids have dropped out before we ever get to that elite group. And, and we won't, we'll, we'll just leave aside the economics of pay to play for the moment. But we are killing the love of a game for millions of kids because they're not playing the game. They're coming to practice. And we're trying to think, well, should we have them shoot? Should we have them pass? Should we have them dribble? Should we have them do this activity or this activity? You know, We'll say, to say nothing of having them stand in line, why aren't we just having them show up and play and play and play? Because until our kids can learn to play soccer, we are making a, we're trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear to try to teach Barcelona to a bunch of kids who don't have any game sense is silk purse out of a sow's ear. It's lipstick on a pig. And that's what we're doing in this country because I, I, I go around the country. My experience is mostly Ohio and Southern California. Southern California, a hotbed of soccer. There's a there's a mm-hmm. park across the street where I grew up. My my parents still live there, and and there's soccer teams out there playing all the time. But they're not playing; they're practicing. And I challenge you to go for a jog around any park, any local park where you got soccer teams practicing, and you'll be shocked how few of those teams are actually playing soccer. You just almost never see right. it. Yeah, so, and, you know that's that's my incredibly you know the 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 the, the incredibly complex uh, version of a soccer practice. Let them play, and as a teacher, you intervene every once in a while and you say something. You become the soccer whisperer, and the kids. My experience, having done that, it was night and day. It was amazing, which is why we wrote the book because we 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 just stumbled upon something, and the difference, the joy. And the quality, and we can talk later about the quality if you want to ask about that. But it was, it was night and day. Well, the the good news is that the first practice plans that I've seen in the the new play practice play model that uh, is apparently replacing the old warm up small sided game, then expanded small sided game, and we're not really going to explain the difference between the two and then scrimmage model. But the first the first play practice play uh practice plans I've seen start with what you're describing, which is where you uh you know, as kids come in yeah. you have them start start playing and you ask about their day and uh which yeah. I think is a, a a nice teaching point. Um of course it reminds me that, you know, maybe one thing I should do this fall is to try to sign up for the first practice slot on each field so I'm not sitting there with my kids off to the side you know, waiting for the the team ahead of us to vacate so we can because that's our area. You know, we've got basically three time slots per field. Um, yeah. Because fields are in such demand. Um, so, in my case, it's really more okay when the other when the team ahead of us vacates, then you know, then I've probably got ten kids to run out and and start you know practicing. But um, 
And then the funny thing about these uh, about the practice plans they had, um, these were I think U12 or maybe U14 practice plans, and they were all different topics. But if you look really carefully at the practice plans, they the middle part, the practice part, was almost always the same sort of thing. It was, you know, 7v6 or 8v6 yep. or something like that. Basically, um, a slightly modified scrimmage. It might be that, you know, yeah. one side yeah. has a goal and one side has counter goals yeah. and so forth. And, and so I, I think in that respect, and, and I do want to ask you in a minute how much, if you've seen much, change or anything encouraging about that. But I wanted to go back a little bit to sort of drills versus games. Because when I was coming through the the you little ranks, and I wrote a book about this, and now I don't coach. It, it, it's funny how um, – I think you and I talked about this earlier, about how um, once you've been a coach for a while, you go, man, I wish I'd done this differently. I think, I think every yeah, yeah. parent coach has to do that because – um, you know, you and I are only going to coach U sevens once or twice, depending on how many kids we have. Yeah. Um, but you know, we were always told to make them more game-like instead of drill-like, to make them soccer-like activities. And there was—I can't remember if it was your book or if it was something else—was fairly dismissive of sharks and minnows. And I thought, uh, no, we, we, I yeah, thought, we didn't say anything about sharks and minnows, but uh, yeah, keep going. Yeah. And I, I thought. I thought I love sharks and minnows, and the kids love it. Kids love, the kids love sharks and minnows. Yeah, yeah, and it gets yeah. more people on the ball. I mean, if you're playing four four v four, that's a nice size to have, but it's still eight kids for one ball. Whereas sharks and minnows, it's you know half the kids have a ball, and yeah. they're trying to dribble past the sharks, and, and the kids like it, and it is teaching them to control the the ball. So, do you still see value in? Yeah, if you were coaching U8s, would you use sharks and minnows today? So, um, yeah, the kids love sharks and minnows, I guess, and and I used to use it all the time. You know, I, I coached my, my two sons, and I really drilled in very creative ways, but drilled the foot skills into those into their, their teams because um, I wanted my sons to have those foot skills. And, you know, they all developed those foot skills, and we did a lot of sharks and minnows and variations on sharks and minnows to keep as many kids – with their feet on the ball, trying to evade a defender as much as possible, right? It was maximum touch, maximum touch, maximum touch. And my two boys have got great foot skills. Mm-hmm. But my two boys don't have much game sense. I have to admit, right. they don't have much game sense. So what we, the reason, again, we wrote this book is because this year we went to, let's just play ball on a small field. And you, and you you worry that they're not going to get as many touches, and they don't get as many touches. But because the field is very small and uh, and there are a lot of kids on that field, it's quite packed in. Um, and when the ball would fly out of bounds, I just toss another ball in there. So they're not chasing balls, you know, around – they're not spending their time chasing balls around around the field. Um the, and they that's don't what they get teach us to do when we're running games at U8. That's what they, they yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, to, to just toss the ball in, yeah. Overall, the kids aren't getting as many touches as, as Sharks and Minnows or any other drill you're going to run, but the touches they're getting are so much more authentic and so much more intense. Mm-hmm. The boys are picking up skills. So I used to spend entire seasons teaching my kids a series of foot skills. But when we started playing – 
and I would have my assistant, I would get these assistant coaches, quote unquote assistant coaches. My assistant coaches are always other adults, right? The adults are paid, you know, a very nominal sum to be an assistant. I have them there for crowd control. I bring out these teenagers with, you know, with real great foot skills and some kind of ability to kind of have a good time with the kids. And those those teenagers, or uh, we had a couple of college students, one who went and who's now playing with a USL team, another one who's a graduate student from Brazil with just crazy foot skills. Those guys, they start playing, and I, and I tell them, I don't want you coaching at all. All I want you doing is doing the craziest stuff you can come up with against these boys. Well, guess what happens? Within within five minutes, my boys are trying to pull off all the moves that I've been trying to coach into them for the last year. They're doing it within mm-hmm. five minutes in a in a real game situation, playing against older kids. All I got to do is stick out one older kid, and the older kid rainbows someone, or the older kid scissors someone, or the older kid pulls a Zidane or Maradona or whatever you want to call it, and suddenly all my boys want to try it. Uh, the, the older kid. Uh, you know, points over there and says, hey, what's that? And then, and then goes the other way. And suddenly all my boys are trying that. And so what happened when we got in the travel <laughs> season? Well, we didn't win all of our games because I had boys out there who were trying to nutmeg the keeper when they've got an easy shot <laughs> on goal. You, know, you might say, well, well, see, that's what you got. But my, my argument would be, and what? We didn't win the U10 division of Northwest Ohio soccer? Right. Who cares? My kids are trying to nutmeg the keeper. My kid is chipping. My kid is rainbowing the defender. The other team, yeah, they're playing like a machine. Um, and so we won slightly over half of our games. But we were by far the smallest club, by far the smallest club in, 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 the, in, the, in the highest division of, of the league. And, uh, and the last two games of the season when it was going to, you know, the question of are we going to finish above 500 or below 500, I asked the boys, do you want to win? Do you want to do you want to win these games? And they said yes. And so halfway through the second to last game at halftime, I said, okay, guys, we're going to play to win. And we ended up uh, we we were down two one. We ended up beating them eight to nothing in the second half. I mean, so my boys could play soccer, but but they were back to the way we ran practice. Not as many touches, but the touches are so much more meaningful. And I think that's what we want are meaningful touches. Going back to Sharks and Minnows, Sharks and Minnows is fun. It's better than just running up and down the field, running up and down the field, running up and down the field with a fake defender, you know, kind of a shadow defender on you. Uh, but I think that you can get even more out of simply letting them play soccer. At these younger ages, we need to let them play. I, I think the the model you're talking about, the play, uh, uh, practice play or whatever, however they put it, is is right on. Um, but you know what? If the play is working, there's no reason to ever break, break that up. And I would also uh, 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 argue, I think, uh, along with what you were saying, that uh, you can use that same game one day to emphasize uh, good decision-making, the next day to emphasize creativity, the next day to emphasize you know, how, to, how to really finish on that goal, the next day how to emphasize uh, 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 it, it, 1v1 defending, the next day how to, how to emphasize team defending. And, um, and it all works. I mean, soccer is a game after all, and you've got to be able to play that game. Yeah, I'll need to dig up these practice plans and put them in the uh, and put them in the show notes, and uh, so people can take a look at them. Um, I don't quite remember where they are off the top of my head, but I'll be able to find them, put them in the show notes for uh, for this. And yeah, it, it, there is a balance to strike here because it, between you know the the skill development, the game. I, I there's a club I know. That is all about skill development. They tell you, oh, don't worry about game results. Don't worry about game results. And you know, at U9 and U10, that's okay. 
by the time you get to U12 and you have kids who are still, you know, oh, I'm on defense, I'm going to pass right in front of my own goal, and then someone runs up and scores, and you go, this is the fourth year they've just been getting their butts kicked, and now yeah, yeah. most of them want to most of them want to quit. Um, so it does seem like at some point we have to teach game sense, and that that brings us into really sort of the meat of your book and where I was um, interested, but at times a little bit skeptical uh, about you know making everything sort of more free play and uh, letting kids learn through the game. Because I thought of one experience I had with a kid who turned out for my U7 practices wearing a messy shirt, uh, yeah. had wonderful skills. Yeah, when we were dribbling, he was he was fine. When we started playing three-on-three three or four-on-four, four, he never touched the ball uh, because he was, you know, a small, slight kid, and the big, fast kids were just, taking the ball and he never got a sniff of it and I didn't see him come back the next season. So so what can we do about that? And you know, how does the model that you're suggesting where everybody get in and play, uh, what do you do with a kid like that to sort of to keep him involved? Yeah. So I would I you know I I wasn't there for your practice. But uh what what one of the things we argue in our book is that the conditions that were that were that were that our kids are playing within are rewarding the wrong kinds of skills. They're not uh, rewarding the kinds of skills that would have maybe allowed that messy kid that kid to, to shine. Um, typically, uh, American fields are much larger than the fields that the little kids play on in, in Spain or Argentina. Again, I'm just going to speak from mm-hmm. my experience. I, my co-author has a lot of experience in Italy. He says the same thing. So we're, having, we're on larger fields. Larger fields reward the, 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 the larger kids, the kids who have developed early. They can't. Uh, so larger, larger fields, much more space. Big kids, fast kids, they dominate, not the kids with the, with the, with the, with the skills. We also tend to play on much thicker grass, much, much thicker grass than, yeah. than what they play on in other countries. In fact, in other countries, they're not playing on grass. Your average right. Spanish kid has never played a, 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 a youth game on grass. They play on dirt, hard packed dirt traditionally, and more recently, they're playing on artificial turf. Uh, but but in the neighborhoods they're playing on concrete they're playing on asphalt uh, those hard fast surfaces are going to reward the foot skills and they're going to they're going to they're they're going to uh, disincentivize the kid who just boosts the ball far up the field because when you're playing on thick grass if you put a three year old out on out on the grass that we play on in Northwest Ohio which is often if you actually pull the blade out of the ground you'll find it six inches long six inches. And the kind of grass they play on at the Camp Nou in Barcelona, you know, a centimeter and a half. Um, that's that's carpet. That's hard carpet. We're, we're we're playing on six inches of grass, four inches if we're lucky. I was at a recent tournament. The grass looked pretty good, but I yanked the grass out from the roots, and it's about four inches in length. Um, hmm. A three-year-old, if in playing in six inches of grass, the only three-year-old who can move that ball is a three-year-old with a big foot. And when that kid launches that ball, all the parents are going to go woo. And the coaches can go, yeah, and you're even going to hear coaches. We all know you're going to have coaches, even sometimes playing coaching for somewhat elite programs, and I'm, I'm just talking about the elite programs I know, who were screaming, boot it, boot it, boot it. I mean, it's just right. insane. And so you're a little messy in those kinds of conditions. I'm not saying those were the conditions that you played under, but they're the conditions I've seen in Ohio and that I've seen in California, Southern California. Supposedly we've got great soccer in Southern California. 
But these are the conditions that the, the vast majority of kids are playing under. Now, I'll give you, there are the, 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 the most wealthy or the most informed parents might take their kid directly to a very competitive club, and they'll be paying big fees from the very beginning, and their kid will be playing on artificial turf uh, here in the United States. Probably nothing else. You'll never see uh, teams practicing on concrete or asphalt or hard-packed dirt, at least not anywhere I've been. Uh, and so their kids might, have, might, might not be playing under those conditions. But as long as the United States allows the vast, vast majority, 95% of their kids, to be learning soccer in the conditions that our kids are learning soccer in, well, we're going to be rewarding all the wrong things, and we're going to lose so much talent early on. Um, I, I'll just share one little anecdote. There's a, there's a kid who's in college now playing club soccer at the local university, got great foot skills, ended up being the best player of his, of his age group uh, by the time he graduated from high school. But when he was U9, U10, his coach would come to me. I was the president of the club. And his coach would come to me and complain all the time, this kid sucks. And he would tell me, he sucks, he's too small, he's too slow, he can't do this. Why don't we cut kids? This club needs to be more competitive. We need to cut more kids. Um, and But I knew this kid personally. I knew his love for the game. I knew his passion. I knew he was always in the backyard dribbling around. And, and that's where the recording cut out. Uh, so just pretend you're listening to an old vinyl album. Um, since uh, this is a long conversation spread over two parts, uh, let's pretend it's Tales from Topographic Oceans by Yes. And just flip over to side two or part two, uh, which you can find the same place you found this one. Thanks. <laughs> listening please subscribe to the ranting soccer dad podcast using whatever podcatcher you use to find this in the first place could be itunes could be stitcher or maybe you came in through the blog which is rantingsoccerdad.com where you will find all the past podcasts along with news and analysis from the world of youth soccer and beyond and yes you will find the occasional rant about things you'll also see a link to the patreon page to support the podcast and blog and all other ranking soccer dad activities and you'll see merchandise including the travel sucker t-shirt until next time rant on